So we continue on in the Gospel of Luke, if you'd like to open there, Luke chapter 19. As you study the Bible and as you read through, there's a great question to keep asking yourself. Actually, to keep asking the Lord, and and that is, Lord, why did you organize these stories in such a fashion? Why did you put this teaching with this story? Why did you frame it the way that you did? You see, a lot of times when we study the Bible, we grab a story here or a verse there, or a prayer here or a parable. And we'll just focus in and hone in on that, and we don't get to see it in that broader context. That's why I love teaching through the Scriptures together, because we get the broader context. But as you're studying through, understand that in the midst of all these amazing life lessons that can boil down to a single verse, there are also macro lessons that the Lord is teaching. There are larger big picture items that He is unraveling, unrolling before us to view, as it were. Behind all the human penmanship is a divine determination to paint portraits that help us understand something of who God is, why He came in the person of Jesus, what His desires are, His intentions, and greater than anything else, what His nature truly is. Verse 28, Luke chapter 19. After He said these things, He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. That is perhaps the most dramatic verse so far in the story of Jesus. Because now He's not in the midst of the apostles. He's not hanging out among the people, always surrounded by the the throngs of people. Now He's gone on ahead. And this is something that Luke, as he writes it, Luke, that, that journalist getting eyewitness accounts, no doubt the apostles were saying, yeah, there was a moment when we were coming out of, out of Jericho, man, when Jesus took off. And we were, we were just having to run to keep up with Him because He had that, that steely-eyed determination. He was going up to Jerusalem, and we didn't understand it at the time, but He was going on ahead of us. We'll talk more about that on Sunday morning. In fact, this whole story, but let me read it to you. When He approached Bethphage, And Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and there as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, verse 35, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground 
and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We're going to come back to this on Sunday. But note simply this tonight, that it is one of the rare occasions where Jesus allowed, rather invited, public worship. He orchestrates this whole thing. He allows the crowd to adore Him as Israel's Messiah. And He did it in His own authority. And that's the big picture not to miss tonight. Because for the next several verses, the authority of Jesus just emerges like this epic landscape, like this beautiful portrait. As the Lord puts together what happened, and it happened historically. But the pattern in which it happens, it is unmistakable that Jesus proclaims truly and owns, though He always had, it just comes to the fore now, His authority. Riding into Jerusalem on that colt authoritative as a king coming in peace. And after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the next big stir takes place in the temple courts. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus was passionate about His Father's house being, listen, being a house of prayer. This mattered greatly to Jesus. And not just a house of prayer for Israel. In fact, both Matthew and Luke leave off part of Jesus' quote. He's quoting Hebrew Scripture here. He's quoting Isaiah. Mark catches it. Mark chapter 11, verse 17. Mark gets the whole quote in there. Here's the fuller quote. Isaiah 57, verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even those I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar. For My house will be called a house of prayer, listen, for all the peoples. The Jewish temple was never intended simply to be a Jewish temple. God intended the Jewish temple simply to be the temple for all people to come and worship, to come and offer sacrifice. And we know Gentiles did it. Like Cornelius, who we'll meet when we get into the book of Acts. Someday, perhaps, if Jesus doesn't come first. Gentiles coming to worship, Gentiles coming to pray. There was a court for the Gentiles. This rankled the robes of some of the Jewish leaders, no doubt. But Isaiah the prophet said it clearly, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Now understand this, misrepresenting the Lord to the nations is a big deal. And it still is today. And when Jesus comes in there and He sees all the money changers and He sees all the business and the commerce going on in His temple, it was taking place, gang, in the court of the Gentiles. In the presence of the Gentiles, the non-believers. What is it that you do? What is it that I have done in the presence of non-believers that misrepresents the Lord? Because that was not what the temple was about. My house shall be called a house of prayer, Jesus says. Not this. This is not downtown Rome. 
This is not commerce and business. What are you doing? And Jesus, you could say He loses it. He doesn't. He's in complete control of Himself. In fact, we find out from Mark that actually Jesus came into the temple, looked around, and because it was late, went back to Bethany and spent the night, and then came back the next morning and went about clearing out the temple. It was determined, it was purposeful, and it was intentional. He knew what He was doing. I was thinking about this today. We have a big challenge as Christians in America today. Huge, huge challenge. And the challenge is how do we balance and honor and keep God's moral absolutes without alienating our culture from us? How do we do that? I'll tell you what, keeping the moral absolutes is easy. I can stand up and and call out all kinds of sinners. That's not a problem. And I can point to Scripture and say, this is what Scripture says, and you are wrong in this. And I can decry the movie Noah. And I have. (laughs) How do we stand on biblical authority and scriptural truth? How do we pursue righteousness and pursue the sinner who doesn't get it? How do we keep from messing up the temple? I was thinking about that, and this morning when I woke, I looked on Facebook. And there I saw a quote by Ken Ham. Some of you know who Ken Ham is. He's the, the uh, kind of founder of Answers in Genesis. And he's really been coming out strong against the movie Noah, and he should, because it's completely bogus. And I believe blasphemous. That being said... All I saw was a post from Answers in Genesis and Ken Ham saying, I was greatly saddened by this article. And I looked at the article and it was written by Rabbi, or Ravi Zacharias. Now if you know who Ravi Zacharias is, he is a theologian. He is a strong voice in the Christian community. The guy is absolutely brilliant. I have some of his books at home. He is a thinker par excellence. He has a way of explaining the gospel that is amazing. Kim Ham, a Christian, had a problem, was saddened by something that his fellow Christian, Ravi Zacharias, said. What did he say? Quote, Ravi Zacharias speaking in Outreach Magazine. Rather than spend our time debating for hours whether it's billions of years or whether it's thousands of years, we should instead be arguing for the fact that you cannot explain the full questions of life, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, without a personal, moral first cause, which is God Himself. He says, we've made everything a moral issue and forgotten that the salvation message is what morality alone cannot solve. I read that and I went, he's right. Morality is not the answer to America's problems. Jesus is the answer. God is the answer. Faith is the answer. Not here. Follow the Christian set of moral absolutes. Because if you don't have Jesus, those moral absolutes just become law and legalism and they don't work. Which we see in the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And try to keep the law. Go ahead. It's perfect. And you are not. Keep the law without the Father. Keep the Gospel without the Son. It doesn't work. So... Rabbi Zacharias is absolutely right. Ken Ham responded, I was saddened by these statements from Rabbi Zacharias in Outreach Magazine. 
As I've said many times, the timeline, that is the age of earth and the universe, is not the primary issue, but the real issue is biblical authority. It's not just the fact that God created that matters, but that we take His Word as written in Genesis The details do matter. And he said, I am so burdened that Christian leaders stand on the authority of God's Word beginning in Genesis. And I read that and I said, he's right. (laughs) He's absolutely right. Biblical authority. And the message of the Gospel. And so I began to ponder this when I came to Jesus walking into the temple. And it's like, wow. How do you do it? How do you do it, Jesus? How do you draw people by your loving grace and proclaim your absolute truth at the same time? How do we navigate these things? we got to go to the house of prayer, gang. The only way we are going to navigate moral absolutes and purity and righteousness, yes, that we are called to, and the grace and compassion and love For people who don't know Jesus that we are also called to, the only way is that we spend time in the house of prayer. And spending time in the house of prayer, we kneel, don't miss this, we kneel to the authority of Jesus Christ. That we say, Lord Jesus, You alone can rescue. You alone can save. He's the one who lifted us from the grave, right? He's the one who has that power. I don't. If you're asking me, Rick, how do you do this? I don't know other than to say we go to Jesus. Other than to say we listen to Him. And if we're struggling between declaring a moral absolute and loving someone who is sinning, we go to Jesus. And we ask Him for the grace to walk that fine line, which sometimes is a fine line. What we see here in this first story is what I would call, if you're taking notes, authoritative indignation. Jesus is indignant. He comes into the temple and He's ticked off. And rightly so. This is a righteous anger going on here. And you might ask, well, what right did this itinerant Galilean rabbi have to upset the common culture of business going on there in the temple? The Jewish leaders thought that. What right does he have to do this? Who is this guy? What is he thinking? Well, Jesus had done it before. This is not the first time. Turn your Bibles over to the Gospel of John. Just one Gospel over. Chapter 2. John chapter 2. Halfway through the chapter, about verse 13. Tells us the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. By the way, you know what the money changers were doing? They were saying, your foreign money is not good here. Only Jerusalem money is good here. So you've got to change your money to Jerusalem money and then you can buy your sacrifices. And as they changed the money, they built their brothers and sisters. They ripped them off. They charged interest. They said, you know, your, your money's not worth as much as temple money is. They were changing money to make money. And Jesus was ticked. We're told that He made a scourge of cords, a whip of cords, verse 15. And He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And I'm sorry, you don't overturn a table gently. Excuse me just a minute. (laughs) 
Don't mean to offend. Pardon me. He's kicking the tables over. He's, 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 you might think if you didn't know Jesus, He's in a rage. And those who are selling the doves, He said, Take these things away. Stop making My Father's house a place of business. And His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume Me. Psalm 69, verse 9. The Jews then said to Him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But He was speaking of the temple of His body so that when He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name, observing His signs which He was doing. But Jesus, note this, Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them for He knew all men and because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man for He Himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? It means He was not proclaiming that He was Messiah. It means that this didn't happen following the triumphal entry. That this clearing of the temple was at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and the clearing of the temple in Luke chapter 19 was at the end of His public ministry. He bookends His ministry by clearing out the temple. At least twice, Jesus would have to go through this. At least twice, He would be turning over those tables and pulling out the whip of cords and driving out the animals and the doves and telling the people, knock it off. My Father's house is a house of prayer. John is writing about the very first Passover that Jesus attended. Again, at the beginning of His ministry. This is not a chronological error and it is not a contradiction between the Gospel according to John and the Gospel according to Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share the story at the end of his ministry. Triumphal entry, clearing of the temple. John alone shares the clearing of the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. Why? You see, I believe Jesus did this on purpose and I believe the Scriptures are purposeful in showing us two clearings at the beginning, at the end, because Jesus bookended His ministry by cleaning out the robbers and restoring the temple's primary focus, which was prayer. And it only took Him three years to get back to business as usual. Gang, we each have a temple that needs cleaning out from time to time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And turning your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Keep going to the right of John, just a few books there. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. And listen, as Paul writes very clearly, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is absolutely black and white, morally absolute. 
And then he says, Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Interesting, kind of like Jesus at the very beginning of His ministry washed and cleansed and sanctified the temple. We start that way. When you give your life to Jesus, you're sanctified. You're cleansed. You're made right. And you are secure in your salvation from that day forward, no matter how ugly it gets. You've got the grace that saves you. However, like the second cleansing of the temple, I think sometimes we need Jesus to come back through and do a recheck. Not having to do with our salvation, but just having to do with our spiritual state. Paul says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And he begins to talk about food, and I'll explain that when we get to 1 Corinthians, but skip on down. In verse 17, he says, The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee immorality. That's literally sexual immorality, pornea. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so we see, as with Jesus cleansing the temple, a cleansing at the beginning of His ministry, John tells us, and a cleansing at the end of His ministry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us. And I think, wow, I need both. The cleansing unto salvation, my sanctification, and then the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in my life. How many of you, after being saved, how many of you, after giving your life to Jesus, have been perfect ever since? Just show of hands. That always gets people because if you raise your hand, you're a liar and you've just sinned. The sanctifying work of the Spirit, the cleansing of the temple at the beginning, and then truly, in our case, throughout. But Jesus covers both ends of His ministry with it. And understand... That only as I prayerfully rest under the authority and the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ will I ever be able to discern both grace and truth. And in discerning grace and truth, be able to give grace to the lost and give truth in a world that denies it. And we're really called to both. Only Jesus can do that. So I encourage you all, as He has been calling on my heart, enter the house of prayer. Spend time in the house of prayer. Be sanctified. Be cleansed in the house of prayer so that when these situations arise, you know how to respond in grace and in truth. Verse 47 goes on, Luke 19.47. And He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy Him. And that's not just dramatic language. They wanted Him dead. And they could not find anything that they might do. For all the people were hanging onto every word he said. Number two, authoritative instruction. Authoritative instruction, the people were hanging on to every single word he said. And so here again, an answer to how do we navigate this whole idea of love and morality, grace and truth. We navigate it in the house of prayer by the leading of His Holy Spirit and we navigate it by hanging on to every word He said. 
And I'll tell you, if you're not hanging on to the Scriptures, if you are not in the Word of God, you will not navigate this well. Some of the most judgmental Christians I have ever met don't know their Bible. They just know they're right. And we're not called to that. We are called to know the Word of God and to walk in the Spirit of God and in spirit and in truth worshiping God. We find that He leads us and gives us what we need when we need it. Listen to the voice of the shepherd. Spend time in His Word. Because truly His authority, His authoritative instruction, it's all that we really need. Chapter 20, verse 1. We continue, On one of the days while He was teaching, and understand now we are in His last week, the final week. Began with that triumphal entry, and now it's countdown. The drums are beating. We're heading up to the cross. On one of the days while He was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the Gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted Him. And they spoke, saying to Him, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Remember they said that, John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry. They still can't figure it out. Because Jesus is not teaching like their rabbis. He's teaching as though it's coming right out of his own spirit. Because it was. Who is the one, they say, who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I'll ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John... From heaven or from men? Well, they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. They dodged the bullet. In verse 8, Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> he got them. He just got them. He had them and he knew it. And there was no answer that they could give that could hold up their religious facade, so they gave a non-answer. You'll find that when you get into debates and arguments. Not when you have the right answer, but when you take people to Jesus, it shuts them down real fast. When you just talk about Jesus. Well, they feigned ignorance. You see the big picture here? This is not a battle of wits. They may have thought it was, but Jesus here is engaged in a war for the heart. He is pressing the issue of His authority on them. Number three, authoritative insinuation. Why does He say what He says? Is He just trying to trick them so that He wins the argument and they look foolish? No, that's not what's happened. That's not my Lord. That's not the Jesus as described in the Bible. Jesus talked about the baptism of John, knowing it was heavenly. You know, John came as a prophet of the Lord, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus knew that. And so he said, Was John's baptism from heaven? Was it divine? Or was it something that he just did? Why did he ask that question? Because Jesus himself bore the same heavenly authority by which John baptized. He's refocusing them on authority. Think about authority. You guys have got to put together what's going on here. The Jewish leaders knew that a forerunner preceded the Messiah. They knew this from their own scriptures. And Jesus points to John. What do you think that was about? In grace, Jesus is giving them opportunity to get who He is and to understand His authority. But the chief priests and the elders, they didn't know where John was coming from. They didn't get John. 
And if you deny the one who comes in the name of the Lord, how can you possibly accept the Lord when He Himself comes? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We've got to know where the message is coming from. We need to know the heart of the message itself. And the chief priests, they didn't get John. Furthermore, they didn't know where his baptism itself was coming from because they didn't recognize God's authority in John's ministry. That was the issue. If they had seen God's authority in John, they would have immediately answered, Heavenly. His baptism was heavenly because he bore all the marks of a prophet with the authority of God. But they didn't believe it. And so when Jesus came, He who is one with the Father, they didn't recognize His authority either. Again, Jesus wasn't playing games here. He wasn't playing games when He said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Why not? Because the authority of Jesus over a person's life must be received. It must be accepted by faith. And the reason He doesn't tell them His authority is because they weren't ready and they wouldn't have believed it even if He had. So first, let's see where your heart is. And then, I can't tell you. Because even if I do, you're not going to accept it. I think that's remarkable. You think about all the religions in the world and you think about Jesus coming into the world, God in the flesh, and what does He do? He says, I have all the authority of eternity, but I'm not going to force it on you. I'll show it to you. But you have to receive and accept it. You have to choose my authority. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying there is, no one can own Jesus as Lord. No one can receive Jesus as Lord. No one can accept Him as Lord into their heart except by the Holy Spirit. Except that their heart has been opened. Now, Jesus tells us a parable that further uncovers, number four, an authoritative insurrection. Authoritative insurrection. Verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. Bible students, you know what that vineyard is? Israel. The vineyard is Israel. Well, how do you know? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Same parable. Isaiah told it, now Jesus is telling it. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. Isaiah 5, verse 2. He built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Be'ushim in the Hebrew, stink berries. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. We studied this when we went through Isaiah. You remember? The song of the vineyard. And the Spirit of Christ inspired Isaiah the prophet to speak the parable of the vineyard, 
750 years before Christ now comes on the scene. And in His ministry, Jesus grabs hold of that vineyard parable and He expands it. And He gives it its fuller meaning. Verse 10. At the harvest time, He sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give Him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat Him and sent, another, and sent Him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send the third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. And so you know, the vineyard is Israel, the vine growers are the leadership of Israel, those who have been entrusted with the authority over Israel, and the slaves now being sent to collect from the vineyard are the prophets. And then, the owner of the vineyard, verse 13, God, said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But the vine growers saw him, and they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now note this. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. Disingenuous. Duplicitous. Liars. They knew who He was talking about. In fact, you'll see this down in verse 19. They knew exactly what He was talking about. He was talking about them. But they had to, again, feign ignorance. They had to say, oh, oh, that's terrible. No, that should, that should never happen. Well, Jesus looked at them. Verse 17. And I imagine it was with a flash of fiery indignation. I could be wrong. But I just get the feeling that when they said, may it never be, He looked at them as if to say, right. Come on. You know what this is about. And he said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And gang, I've told you before, this is, this is not some namby-pamby Christian humility that he's talking about. Fall on the stone. You've got to get broken on the stone. I believe we need to be broken before the Lord. I accept that. We need to repent. We need to recognize our sinful state because we desperately need His grace. But that's not what He's talking about here. If we say that, we, we make superficial something that is so magnificently deep. He looked at them. And He still is offering them hope even for their lying attitudes. I think it's obvious to you all, the stone, the rejected stone, the chief cornerstone is Jesus. Absolutely, that's the Lord. But what about those who are broken on the stone and those who are crushed and scattered by the stone? Those who fall on the stone and are broken by it are again Israel. How do we know? We let the Scriptures tell us. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 says, It is the Lord of hosts, whom you should regard as holy, and He shall be your fear, and He shall be your dread, and then He shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, 
a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them and they will fall and be broken. Those who are broken on the stone, as he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and not less than 40 years after the crucifixion, not one stone was left upon another of the temple and Jerusalem and the people of Israel were broken. Just as he said they would be. Okay, so on whom does the stone fall? Who is scattered into dust? Those on whom it falls speaks of the nations. How do you know that? We let the Bible interpret for us. Daniel chapter 2. You all know the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that he had, the dream of that glorious golden-headed statue that I think looked just like Nebuchadnezzar. A monument to the nations, a glorious statue. But in his dream, it suddenly became a nightmare as this massive stone cut without human hands comes soaring through the heavens and smashes the statue and scatters it, the Bible tells us, to dust. The stone that smashes to dust. And it refers to the nations who reject the cornerstone Jesus. So put that together. The glory of Israel is broken. The glory of man will be scattered like dust And all because of an insurrection against the authority of Jesus Christ. He comes in grace. He comes in love and in mercy. But to receive that, we have to accept His authority. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And verse 19 tells us the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on Him that very hour. (laughs) They feared the people, for they understood that He spoke this parable against them. So they watched Him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. And please understand, you cannot trick Jesus into thinking you're righteous. (laughs) That's religion. You cannot dress it up and think that you're sliding by. Well, I sat in the front row of church every week. Doesn't matter. Because He sees right through you, right through me, and into our hearts. Verse 21, they questioned Him, these surreptitious spies. They said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Okay, wait a minute. Beware the flatterer. Beware the flatterer. He always has an ulterior motive. And I have seen this and I have seen it, gang, in church. People who come along flattering with a huge agenda that they just want to pull out at the right moment when they think they've got you buttered up. Let me just tell you, as a pastor, I do not butter easily. (laughs) Beware the flatterer. 
Paul writes in Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And so here come these smooth talkers and they present Jesus with what they knew was a hot button issue in Judea. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? (laughs) In 6 AD, Rome began to require the Jews to pay their taxes directly to Rome. And Israel began to lose some serious autonomy at that time. They hated it. The Jews hated it. It's one thing to pay taxes, the temple tax, and to pay taxes to their own you know, country and their own people. But now that their taxes were going directly to Rome, they, they absolutely hated it. And these spies are hoping now by asking this question to sway public opinion. You see, if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Rome, all they have to do is go to the governor and say, he's an insurrectionist. He's out there stirring up the people. In fact, they're going to say that about him. Anyway... But if he answers that way, they've got him. If, on the other hand, he answers and he says, well, of course we should pay taxes to Rome. The people will hate him. (laughs) We got him. Anyway, he answers, we've got him. Verse 23, he detected their trickery, oops, and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? (laughs) And they said, Caesar's. And he said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in saying, in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Yeah, they did. <laughs> what do you, how do you answer that? He, he is, Jesus is marvelous. He's brilliant. He's got him again. Number five, this time with an authoritative inscription. An authoritative inscription. What was inscribed on the coin? He asks, Caesar. It's his coin. What are you worried about? Who's inscribed on the dollar bill? George Washington. Give it to him. Who cares? (laughs) Brothers and sisters in Christ, who are you worried about? What are you worried about? This health care thing. Oh, don't get me started. The government's got now one-sixth of the economy. Total control. They're just, they're going to control everything. Who cares? You think Christians in the last 2,000 years haven't dealt with worse? You think there are not Christians in the world today dealing with incredibly oppressive governments far worse than our own? Render to Caesar what Caesar's. Government wants to take over health care? Whatever. God's the one who has my health care. He's the one who's taking. He's the one who's numbered my days and knows how long I'm going to live, and he knows what illnesses are before me, and he knows why he's going to take me through them, and how he's going to take me through them, and he knows if he's going to heal me from them physically or bring me on home. He's got it all. What am I worried about? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And I think a lot of us as Christians, myself included, would be a whole lot less stressed out if we watched less of the news and we spent more time in the house of prayer. And more time in the Word of God, which brings a confidence that no government can offer. 
there's a balance that we have today in Christianity. We are dual citizens. We have a citizenship, those of us here in America. We have a citizenship in heaven. I, I have three kids who have triple citizenship. <laughs> you know, they're, they're full-fledged citizens of Ghana, citizens of America, citizens of heaven. How do we deal with this? We are responsible, gang, to both unless, as I've said before, our earthly authority tries to supersede the heavenly authority. Then we go with heaven every time. Then we render to God what is God's. And by the way, if the Jewish people up to this point had rendered to God what was His in the first place, they would not have to have had to render to Caesar a plug nickel. Do you know why they're paying taxes to Caesar at this point? Because the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 have come to pass. Moses said in Deuteronomy 27, Deuteronomy 28, he said the blessings and the curses, if you follow the Lord, you will have blessings and you will live in the land free and clear. But if you don't, you will be cursed in the land. So they're paying taxes to Rome. Instead of keeping the Word of God, over time they began to twist and change the Word and not keep the Word of God. By the way, they're going to twist the words of Jesus too. In fact, in just a few days, Luke 23, verse 2 tells us they're going to say to Pilate about Jesus, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. That's not what he said. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. And they took those words and twisted them and lied. And then they said, they say that he himself, as Christ, is a king. And you know what's ironic? Is as Jesus stood there holding that denarius in his hand, that Roman coin, he held it in the same hand that would be pierced by the government inscribed on the coin, not a few days later. And let me ask you this in the sentencing of Jesus Christ, who had the authority? Jesus was all over it. Pilate was not in authority at the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish leaders were not in authority at the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, Pilate says to Jesus, John 19, verse 10, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Enter the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection, which is why they are... Thank you. The Sadducees are the elite of Israel, the aristocratic These guys are the high priestly. They are also incredibly worldly. And they would rather compromise with Rome than lose their comfy status. This is kind of the attitude of the Sadducees. And they now step up to the plate in verse 27 with an amazingly lame question. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he's childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And that's right. It's good law. I mean, not today. I wouldn't want, not, you know, but for them, then, good law. Verse 29. <laughs> I just don't want to set myself up. Verse 29. Now, they go on, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. And in the same way, 
All seven died, leaving no children. One bride for seven brothers is what that story is. Okay. Verse 32, finally the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, and this is just hilarious because everybody knows the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so their question is moot before they even get out of their mouths. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And once again, you get this little group of Jewish leaders going, we got him. We got him. And Jesus said, the sons of this age, now I side, I'm not saying Jesus side, but he had every right to at this point. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Where is Jesus getting this? From himself. From his own divine authority, because he's been there. He's just speaking what is. Once again, he's speaking with an authority unlike any of their rabbis. He's just saying, well, let me explain to you how it is in the resurrection. (laughs) I've been in eternity myself. He says, but that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. By the way, passage about the burning is not there. He basically just says, even Moses showed in the bush where he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, hold on right there. The reason why Jesus doesn't say in the passage about the burning bush is because the way the rabbis taught was they taught based on stories. They didn't have passages. They didn't have scriptures. And so if a rabbi wanted to guide his disciples to a particular teaching, he would say, Moses in the bush. And they knew where he was talking about. We would say Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. But there was no Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. There was just the scroll of Exodus. And so that's why Jesus is talking this way. It's not because he didn't know it was in Exodus 3, 6. He says, Moses showed us in the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of... Jacob. Now, before I go any further, one thing about the question of these Sadducees, about all the wives and or all the all the brothers and the one wife, you can file their question among questions like, Did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> I don't know. Ask Eve. What, what do you ask? I don't know. Can God make a rock so big that He can't lift it? Here's a good one for you. Let me give you kind of a modern one. Did rock monsters actually fall from heaven in Noah's day? Those of you who have seen the movie... David Guzik wrote, an absurd question isn't valid just because it's directed at God. Think about that. And it's the same with the movies, I might add. Don't look to Hollywood to legitimize biblical truth. Well, Hollywood's doing spiritual movies. Really? Have you seen what comes out of Hollywood? What are you excited about? I'm so shocked at what they did with Noah. You are? <laughs> when we thought that, they, that Aronofsky was going to do something different? Unbelievable. 
by asking this question again. The Sadducees, they revealed how little they understood Scripture. And in fact, in Matthew and Mark's version of the story, as they tell it, Jesus responded saying, you don't understand the Scriptures. You don't even know what you're talking about. And he gives this brilliant answer, which is number six, an authoritative implication. And you've got to pay close attention because once again, Jesus is not trying to win arguments. He's not playing games here. There is a reason he answers the way that he answers. He gives a plain answer. Understand there's not marriage in the resurrection and you'll get that when you get there. It's going to be far better than anything here. Even the best marriage is going to pale in comparison to the way we're going to be in the resurrection. However... When he says that, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage of the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. What is Jesus saying? God didn't say, I was Abraham's God when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I was the God of Abraham back in the day. I was the God of Isaac when he lived. I was the God of Jacob long, long ago. No, what did he say? Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not speaking in the past tense. He's saying, right now, I'm the God of Abraham. Well, how can you say that if Abraham doesn't exist? If Abraham has long since died and now is in a state of non-existence. No, he's living. And so God could say, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. Because I, you know, just hanging out with Isaac last week. I am the God of Jacob. Because I'm the God of the living. You need to understand how resurrection works. These three fathers of yours are not buried. Their bodies are. But their spirits are alive. And Jesus is saying something profound here. And the Sadducees are listening. And and what Jesus is saying is, how is it possible for God to be the God of Abraham without resurrection? If there's no resurrection, how could God say what He said? Verse 38 again, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. And some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they did not have courage to question Him any longer about anything. And once again, Jesus not only had a mastery of the Scriptures, but the authoritative implication is that, listen, it's that He was there. He speaks of eternity as one who has been in eternity. It's a completely different kind of authority than anyone else ever had or ever would have. As he said in an earlier confrontation with the Pharisees, remember this, John 8.58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. The Greek, egoimi. The Hebrew, Yahweh. Before Abraham was born, I am the God of the living. Not past tense, not only present tense, not future tense, always tense. Not always tense like some of us, but... (laughs) He is always 
here. And Jesus now presses the issue even further. Again, He doesn't let him off the hook. If he was just about winning arguments, he's won the argument, but he goes a step further. Then he said to them, verse 41, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Understand, David's writing that. (laughs) It's one of my favorite Psalms because David is writing, and David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. The Lord said to the Messiah, But wait a minute. Messiah is the son of David. And Jesus is saying, tell me how this works. Verse 44, Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Again, Jesus is not toying with them. He's not out to win arguments. He is out to win souls. And he's offering this astounding evidence of his own eternal claim as Israel's Messiah. And I keep saying this, Jesus doesn't leave us any option but to either accept or reject His authority as Christ. We either accept that He is Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, come to save us, or we reject Him. There is no middle ground with Jesus. And He's not only the Son of David, He is the Lord of David. How can He be the Lord of David? Revelation 22.16 Jesus said, I am the root and the descendant of David. I come before David. I come after David. I am Messiah. And that, my friends, is authority. That is authority. The authoritative implication in what He's trying to get them to understand. They're trying to trap Him. They're trying to get Him in a place where they can destroy Him. And all the while, do you see what Jesus by His authority is doing? He's trying to save them. He's trying to get through to them. In this last week of Jesus' life, man, He pulls out all the stops. And listen to what He says next. (laughs) Verse 45, And while all the people were listening, He said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Throughout this final week, Jesus' authority is scrutinized, it's attacked, it's challenged. And in just two sentences, He pulls the chair out from under the false authority of the scribes. Back in the 1920s, there was an archaeological discovery in Israel. Few of us got to see it just a few weeks ago. A place called Chorazim. Chorazim, which is the first time I'd ever been to Chorazim. You too, Spence? First time we've seen Chorazim. Now, Chorazim, we've talked about, is one of the three ministry, primary ministry cities of Jesus, beside Capernaum and Chorazim. And we always go to Capernaum because it's just such a remarkable uh, place to see. And we stand in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's a beautiful limestone synagogue. And we stand there and go, wow, Jesus was here. And the problem is, well, He, he was, but about 6 to 12 feet down. Because all the synagogues and all the homes in Jesus' day in the first century were built out of basalt. Volcanic stone, not limestone. 
Well, Chorazin, it's all basalt. They have discovered the first century city of Chorazin. And we walked through it. It was marvelous. We went into the synagogue. Amazing. And it wasn't there. They had a mock-up of it. But they now have in the Israel Museum what they found in that synagogue in Chorazin. And it's called the Kisei Moshe. The Moses seat. And it was the wooden, or not wooden, the stone-carved seat that sat at the front of the synagogue. In fact, when you came in the door, and I'm thinking about doing this, when you came in the door, it was just to the right of the door. And that's where the rabbi would teach from. Can you imagine? It's Sunday morning and you're just running a little behind. (laughs) You rip the door open, and there's the entire fellowship. I'm going to do it. Unless we got to do it in the new building. I'm, this, this is going to be good. When you least expect it. Expect it. Anyway, so, so they have the, the Moses seat. They called it the Moses seat. And, and they're in Chorazim. That's where it was. And all the synagogues had them. And a visiting rabbi or a dignitary was always invited to sit in the Moses seat. The Kisei Moshe. And they could then teach from the Moses seat. Jesus probably sat in that Moses seat in the synagogue at Chorazim as an itinerant traveling rabbi. Oh, it's Rabbi Yeshua. Let's have him teach. But the thing is, these guys, and here's where Jesus is calling them out. They love their robes. And they love their respectful greetings. Scribe, 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 scribe. Pharisee, 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 Pharisee. They love to hear who they are. Rabbi. Well, thank you very much. And he says they love their places of honor, their seats in the synagogues. Same thing goes on in the church. We love our robes and our pulpits and our titles. And they are all the stuff of man and they have nothing to do with the authority of Jesus Christ. Someone wears a robe, hallelujah. Maybe on a hot summer day you can get away with wearing shorts and I can't. Okay? Sitting on a seat, a place of honor. Oh, that's where. You know what's funny to me? Okay, side note. I'll probably delete this from the recording, but just you can hear it tonight. It cracks me up when when some of our shepherds get up here, and I love these guys. You know I love these guys, but they get up here to do communion, and they won't sit here. And it's down to only one or two now, and I, and I tell them every time. It's like, come on, guys. Sit in the seat. It's not my seat. You know where this came from? John Adelot's garage, okay? Come on! The Moses seat. Anyway. I hope I didn't just disparage some shepherds, but you'll know. In fact, you all are going to bust out laughing the next time one of the shepherds comes up at communion and goes over there. You'll be like, he's not sitting on the Moses seat. The cliche Mose! Anyway. Jesus has the authority. And even our use of phrases like pastor, you know, whatever. Rick is good. Less is fine. Just, or hey you. (laughs) Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the authority. And that's what Luke has been showing us, what the Spirit truly has been showing us through Luke in this whole section tonight. The authority belongs to Christ. All authority... Matthew 28.18 In heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Not most of the authority. Not 99% of the authority. All of it. I got none. He has it all. 
And it's His authority that we come to. One final story and we're done tonight. Verse 1 of chapter 21. And He looked up. And he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And it's right in the context of all this stuff going on, all the dust of deceitful, disingenuous, dumb questioning swirling around by the religious crowd. And Jesus looks over and sees the simple, unadorned faith of this poor widow, and it must have blown over him like a breath of fresh air. Like, wow, there's faith. There is someone in Jerusalem who has faith. And it's this widow, and she doesn't know he's watching. Rick, are you saying that Jesus watches when I give? Uh huh. <laughs> He's watching her, and it's just, he marvels. She makes what I would call, seventh and final note, an authoritative impression. She impresses he who has all authority. How does she do it? Well, how much are these little coins worth? If you've ever seen a picture, uh, the King James Version calls these mites. The Greek word here is lepta, and they are tiny, tiny, almost like tip of your finger, tiny, paper-thin copper coins. So thin, if you took one, you could just bend it right in half. These tiny little coins, and she had two of them, and they're the equivalent of 1% of a day's wage. And it's all she had left. I don't even know what it could buy. Perhaps... The end of a stale, day-old, crusty loaf of bread. Maybe. And she has a choice to make. I can buy myself some bread, sustain myself a little longer, or I can give it to the Lord. She gives all that she has, Jesus said, to live on. Now, in context, Jesus has just criticized his scribes for devouring widows' houses. How did they do it? They went to these widows whose rich husbands had left them great sums of money and said, you know, for for X amount of dollars, I will bestow special prayer over your house. And they would pray these long, beautiful, flowing prayers. And the widows just ate it up and paid out until they had nothing. And this was a racket going on among the chief priests, ripping off, devouring the widows' houses. And I wonder if this widow's house had been devoured. And that's why she was down to just... Her last two mites. But what we see in this widow, and what Jesus now praises in her, is that she gave out of her poverty, and her life circumstance had no bearing on her faith. Understand that. Because I think it's a little different. I confess it's different with me. My life circumstance tends to have a lot of bearing on my faith. Her life circumstance, which obviously was bad, had no bearing because her faith said, give it to the Lord. Someone standing there might say, it's all you've got! How could she do this? She could do it because she knew that God was her sustenance. She knew He was her provider. Not 
the two little mites. It didn't matter that she had so little. It didn't matter if she had been fleeced by a priest. And that may have happened. But she knew the value of offering the mite. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so the question I leave you with tonight is how far are we willing to go? How far are we willing to allow Christ's authority in, through, and over our lives? Will He be for you? Will He be for me the ultimate and the absolute authority? Because He has every right. And Jesus, as we bow now, we bow before Your greatness and Your authority. And we bow recognizing that for all of our pride and all of our puffiness and all of our telling ourselves we do great things, we're not so great. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are not so mighty. And truth be told, Father, we are weak. And we are needy. And we all, within our heart of hearts, shudder to think that we have to somehow pull off our lives. And You come along, Lord Jesus, with Your grace and with Your truth. With Your love and with Your moral absolutes. And You draw us to Your authority. And so we bow before You tonight. And we proclaim absolutely Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.